Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Look out, chaps. Look out, chaps. Or <laughs> far in the hall. Uh, I'm doing this for a change. Um, hello. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making Talk with me, James Holland, and, of course, with Al Murray. And the reason I'm introducing it, because this is a really special day, and so that requires special changes of normal plans. Uh, and it's a special day because it is publication day of Mr. Alistair Murray's command. Congratulations, Al. How's it feel? Um, it feels... It feels... Um, uh, 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 Bizarre and fantastic. I mean, I've had I've had books out before, um, uh, joke books, f- books with funny. This is a bit different, isn't it? It's this is this is different because this is this is. I mean, it's got funny bits in it. Yeah, I mean, you take the piss out of me a little bit, and that's fine. Yeah, yeah, and, a little. You know, I, I, let, I, I, you know, I gave a wry smile at that point. <laughs> but this is a serious book. This is a proper work of history, and I and I just I think it's completely brilliant. It's a fantastic book, and I'm not just saying that because I'm your mate. Uh, um, because we've done over 500 episodes. Nine million episodes, yeah. <laughs> Nine million. So I'm saying it because it is really, genuinely an excellent book. It, well, it's, it's, it's wise and it's, it's fascinating and it's made me think about things afresh. It goes without saying that it's fantastically well written. And it's everything you want from a, a, a new, fresh book on the Second World War because it's saying something new and it's in, written in a really, really interesting way and it's and it's learned and and you've done your homework and rolled your sleeves up and done your research and it's and it's it's a proper book well, and you know I couldn't be more thrilled for you. Well, Congratulations. Thank, thank you, James. That's that's very very um uh, it's very sweet of you. I mean, when when I first spoke, I mean, it's a couple of years ago, I spoke to my editor about doing this, and it was in the in the middle of the pandemic, and I thought I thought, well, you know, I've got I've got time for this. This shouldn't be too hard, even though um, it hadn't occurred to me that the National Archive and the British Library, all those places, were shut. So, <laughs> so there was going to be a slight bastard. Yeah, exactly. Going to be a slight um, road bump um, to getting the material together. And then I had, I mean, it is. I mean, we've talked about your writing process, but I mean, it is as much and and in a, in a in a peculiar way. And I was talking to to Woody uh, Woodage about this on 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 his channel. It's as much about it's as, as much like writing a, a stand up show as anything else because you've got to get your story straight. You've got to know. Yeah. You've got to narrative know. arc is key. Yeah, you've got to. Yeah, you you do need your beginnings, middles, and ends, and all you that absolutely sort of, do all that sort of stuff. Three acts and all the rest of it. Well, yeah, and and. And, to a certain extent, and to stick to the story, even when you do your yeah. digressions, which is the sort of yeah. Uh, 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 after all, what we do on the podcast a lot, and I, um, I almost sort of think if I were to if I were to write it again, would it would it come out the same? Having you know that thing when you once you've written a book yeah. and you go back to it, you think, well, you know, maybe this this could be different. I, I, you could probably do I could probably do this book again, but with twenty people, not ten. But then, but then it might not have the sort of concision and the and the you know the impetus that, that that it's ended up with so i don't know i mean it's it's it is ter- it is terribly exciting and if you told me when i was a little boy that one day i would have a book out with a picture of a tank on the cover 
right? Very <laughs> <laughs> good tank as well. <laughs> well, I know it's a it's it's a crusader, so it's. I mean, you know, we, we there needs to be a footnote that says learning not <laughs> learning not to use this tank was one of the essential lessons of the Second World War that the British Army underwent. But um, well, yeah, yeah, it wasn't a very good tank. What I meant was a very good picture. Oh, it's a, it's a glorious what, picture. What, what a, yeah. glorious picture. That's glorious picture. Of not the not the best bit of kit. Um, but yes, I mean, it, <laughs> it, it's. I mean, you know, and you've been, you've been. I mean, the, the other the other thing is this book would simply have been impossible without doing this podcast. Just the breadth of people that we've spoken to, the 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 way that the reading that the reading that I've had to do. I mean, in an attempt to catch up with you and a, an attempt to catch up with our listeners, and then the sort of you know thing to remember about the Second World War is it is only six years, but it's an, a massive, broad, incredible story and Six it is years. exactly and it is a it is a sort of rags to riches tale if you're the allies because you get off to a terrible start and by the end you're in this sort of abundant state of you know so there's li- there is literally a story to be told in that respect there absolutely is but i wouldn't have been able to do it without without having done this podcast without you know and at the back I, you know i thank everyone we've spoken to because because everyone we've spoken to has informed has contributed haven't they yeah yeah in yeah, their way well yeah. i know what you mean i mean it's it's um it, it, it's amazing and it I was um uh, I'm 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 talking to you now from from the top yeah. of point five nine three, and I've just been standing in the in the window of the Monte Cassino Abbey and uh, monastery, and, and yeah. looking back across at Snakeshead Ridge and all the rest of it. And I was just sort of thinking, you know, first time I came here, I, it was in twenty oh four. I didn't really know anything, and now I've kind of you know, thanks to this and thanks to kind of all the studies I've done in in between years, I'm kind of I'm more like a kind of aging aging whiskey barrel. I'm I'm at twenty <laughs> years of oak rather than two. But anyway, the, anyway, forget about that. I mean, but the point is, is you're going to be, uh, we're going to be hearing a, um, a chapter, aren't we? Um, yes. Now. Yes. Um, which is, I think. Uh, and which one is it? I think it's the last chapter. Um, uh, oh, which, Peter White. Which is Peter White. Because in the end. Good choice. Good choice. Um, you know, there are some superstar generals in this book and there are, and there are epic tales of, you know, entire theatres being sort of riddled out and figured out, for instance, in the Slim chapter, for instance, you know. And then there's tales of great calamity in France and Crete and wherever. But but really, that in the end, whether you're winning or losing, the business of the thing comes down to the poor bloody infantry, some, some subaltern trying to keep things under control, trying to keep his men alive and keep himself yep. alive. And Peter White um, is the last chapter of the book because, because actually the whole thing, the sharp end, the point of the spear is... is yep is where command matters almost more than anywhere else and so that's why that's the, that's why we the book ends with that and that's why we thought we put this out today because you don't you don't need to have an opinion on him the way you might about Monty or or Dwingate no. or no or Bradley or Patton or Slim or any of those people <laughs> I, I would put good money on anyone listening to it though having a pretty good opinion of the end of him yeah. anyway we're going to hear this chapter and then we'll be back at the end won't we to have a few yes. concluding remarks yes absolutely see you in a little bit see you in a tick Chapter 10. Peter White. To the very end. Landing on Walker and Island in the autumn of 1944, the bitter joke was that the 52nd Lowland Division, which had trained for mountain warfare, had finally joined the campaign for the liberation of Europe at below sea level. The dazzling successes of the summer were past. The shattering battles in Normandy, the stunning climax at the Falaise Cap, the breakout and the great swan to Belgium that followed, the gambles of Market Garden. 
The war now entered a phase of grind, of territorial tidying up in the wake of the summer's victories before the final assault on the Rhine and Germany itself. Walcheren, which dominated the Scheldt estuary and therefore restricted Allied shipping and supply lines, which still stretched back to the Normandy beaches, had to be taken. It was like so many of the battles in the last few months of the Second World War in Europe, one that had to be won. Failure, to embrace the cliché, was not an option. Second Lieutenant Peter White of the 4th Battalion, the King's Own Scottish Borderers, who had an artist's talent for observation, had not missed the irony of his low-level entry into the war. After years of waiting and training and chop and change, the 52nd Lowland were finally going into action, one of the last British divisions deployed, held back in reserve until the last minute. As the war took White through the Netherlands and into Germany, he keenly noted the changes he and his men underwent as the burden of combat waxed and waned, from the frantic, bleak, winter fighting, to the spring of tantalising combat when victory always felt ever so slightly out of reach and the risks stranger and more tragic, fighting in the puzzle of a country that had been defeated but wouldn't give up. White's account, with the jocks, based on the diaries he made at the time, a compulsion he had been ordered to resist, throws light on the fascinating questions of command and responsibility at his level and it is with his experience of commanding his men in the last months of the war his impressions of what being a soldier and leader was, that we will end this book. He kept the diary up to date and sketched what he saw when he had time, and he had plenty of time. White and his men spent a great deal of time hurrying up and waiting, though never knowing when any pause would suddenly break, and that time afforded them the chance to deliver a memoir that takes the reader to the heart of command. White may have not been making the big decisions. Occasionally, because of casualties among his fellow officers, he would command his company rather than his platoon. But that was as far up the tree as he got, and was divorced from all strategic thinking and considerations, unlike most of the protagonists in this volume. Indeed, he would often admit he had no idea of what was going on around him, who was on which flank, even where he was. Yet for an infantry platoon commander, that was plenty enough to be getting on with. The immediacy of infantry command is where this history of the war ends. A world of patrolling day and night, of stand-tos and stags, of looking for booby traps in every house they entered, of slugging it out in up-close combat, the sheer randomness of who held on to life and whom death took, of stolen sleep and purloined chickens, haughty captives, sullen civilians, men sticking together in a world with a permanently uncertain future. An unremittingly hard life devoid of comfort, yet, for a subaltern, overlaid with unending personal responsibility. It was men, like White, who would have to command to the bitter end, on the front line, and whose lives were in daily, mortal peril. With its garrison in Berwick-upon-Tweed, the King's Own Scottish Borderers, KOSB, like so many of the infantry regiments in the British Army, had battalions deployed in every theatre, from France to Burma. In 1940, men from the KOSB had fought in both BEFs. The 1st Battalion was evacuated at Dunkirk with the original BEF, while the 4th and 5th Battalions, as part of the 52nd Lowland Division, landed at Saint-Malo in the stillborn attempt by the 2nd BEF to disrupt the German victory in France. That wild goose chase ending swiftly in retreat via Cherbourg as part of Operation Ariel. After the fall of France, the 52nd Lowland Division, like all of the formations that remained in the UK, trained in preparation to defend against a German invasion. By 1942, the 52nd had been repurposed as a mountain division, with an invasion of Norway in mind. Keeping the Germans fixated upon the idea that the Allies might invade Norway, 
as improbable as it might seem, was a central plank of pre-D-Day strategy, and it was very successful and effective. Believing this deception, the Germans kept 300,000 men waiting in Norway for nothing to happen, who could have been deployed elsewhere. Of course, this invasion that never was to be didn't happen, so after D-Day, the division was released from its role as a non-invasion invasion force and was retrained, at least to the extent of learning how to get in and out of aircraft, as an air portable unit. Leaving their mountain training aside, the 52nd Lowland, under Major General Hakewill Smith, looked on becoming a self-contained unit in the airborne mould, and the officers got to grips with how to load their men into aircraft in precisely weighed amounts for air portability. But essentially, the change meant they went into the Supreme Headquarters Allied Expeditionary Force, Chafe Strategic Reserve, a spare division standing by, waiting for something to do, as part of the first Allied Airborne Army, said to be burning a hole in Schaaf's pocket. Several operations that weren't to be came and went. And then, for the airborne operation that did happen, Market Garden, the 52nd Lowland were earmarked to be landed by transport plane at Dillon Airfield, once the Arnhem area had been captured and cleared. Hakewell Smith had offered his men as glider-borne reinforcements for Arnhem. Perhaps fortunately for them it came to nothing. The 4th KOSB War Diary tells of two and a quarter hours on the 22nd of September 1944 when it looked like they might be going to the Netherlands. 1,400 hours. CO held further briefing conference for company command and equivalents. Operation to be known in battalion as Yank. Outline plan. 4th KOSB with similar force from 5 KOSB and Skeleton Brigade HQ supported by modified battery, field artillery, to land in gliders west of main Nijmegen-Arnhem axis and move up to southern bank of river near Arnhem to protect rear 1st Airborne Division positions. 16.15 hours, operation cancelled. Sister Battalion, the 5th's diary, is even more laconic. Op planned, op cancelled. Another addition to the Arnhem what-if pile. With the failure of Market Guard, the 52nd Lowland were released from 1st Allied Airborne Army and sent into the line. The British and Canadian armies were both feeling the pinch in terms of manpower as the year drew to a close, particularly with infantry. Well-trained infantry would be needed as the autumn turned to winter to plug the gaps in the Allied armies. The Duke effort was beginning to reach the buffers and had fallen behind the number of Americans in the theatre in August. Manpower was running low to the point where the Canadian government was trying to send conscripts overseas, breaking its promise not to and prompting a mutiny. It was the fate of the 52nd Lowland to enter the battle as the days got shorter and the weather far, far worse, at a time of year when the armies of the past had done what they could to avoid campaigning. Campaigning season was over, but modern warfare was no respecter of tradition. It was the poor bloody infantry who would have to deal with the squalor of a winter campaign, in a winter that was typically bitter for the 1940s. Peter White born in South Africa, but transposed to Surrey when his parents wanted to make sure their sons had a British education, religious to the point of pacifism and arty too, might seem an unlikely officer for a regiment that, despite its border title, nevertheless recruited men from all over Scotland. White had joined the Royal Artillery, but then, as the army began to anticipate shortages in infantry, he was reassigned, choosing the King's Own Scottish Borderers because his father had grown up in the borders. By 1944, the army had long lost touch with the localities of regiments, and men were sent where they were needed. Among the men White commanded, there were English and inevitably Irish soldiers too. Training together helped the men fit together. White's ear became attuned to the accents he had grown up ignorant of, and his men, 
and fellow officers, who at first had thought him too reserved to lead, got used to him in return. As White's brigade, 155th Brigade, seconded to the Canadians for Operation Infatuate, the invasion of Walcheren Island to secure the Scheldt and approaches to Antwerp, were assembled in preparation for going forward. White pondered on what was to come. His training had been excellent, he thought. Battle school had done what it could to get him used to the idea of combat, and he had been subjected to exhaustion beyond all of his previous experience. But in the end, he didn't know if he was ready. He wrote, The biggest unknown factor was the mental reaction of the individual, especially of those in responsibility. What part would fear play? How well could it be overcome or hidden? The tense realisation dawned ever larger that the lives of one's friends and one's own life would depend on split-second decisions in an unknown world of utter chaos. This is a long way from Montgomery dealing with stuff about VD coming across his desk, from Tuca organising his division in his style, from Patton or Bradley navigating the US Army and the press. It could hardly be further away. It's closer to Alistair Pearson's war, though unencumbered by brigade-level orders groups and the bigger picture a lieutenant-colonel would have to contend with. And yet, all of White's superiors had, to varying degrees, experienced this level of command, split-second decisions that meant the difference between life and death. The future was now immediately unknowable. I glanced round at all the rugged, friendly faces and felt reassured. We were all in the same boat, but it was not difficult to wonder a bit, to think of the families of each at home. Where would each be in a couple of days, a week hence? The 4th KOSB were to land at Walcheren Island on Uncle Beach. White at the time was with the carrier platoon. Its duties included towing anti-tank guns, bringing up supplies and evacuating casualties. But because the beach was only 85 yards wide, the guns and universal carriers would be held back for the time being. The beach being so narrow, the worry was that any decent German gunnery would make landing extremely difficult. White was detailed with ensuring that the supplies that came ashore for the battalion were adequately managed, with ammunition prioritised. Once the beach had been seized, the worry was that British artillery might fall short and hit the gigantic ammunition dump White and his men had been building. Tons of ammunition at risk, shells ripping down through the air onto German positions, German rifle fire from houses that Number 4 Commando, who had gone in first, had not yet been able to clear. As a baptism in battle, a first day on the job, there was plenty to make White anxious. As the morning came, stalking snipers supplanted loading ammunition. This first action, using the 52nd Lowlanders shock troops to crack open the German defences at Walcheren, was the last whiff of Special Forces-style operations the division would get. Then they went into the line, and the grind began. Peter White's war was characterised by the cold and the wet of winter, and the dreaded words, prepare to move. Whatever White and his men were doing would have to be abandoned, tea thrown away, meals scoffed or ditched, freshly dug positions forgotten, either to embus in trucks or kangaroos if they were lucky, or to march forward to the site of new positions and to start digging all over again. Tiredness dominated everything, especially the business of stealing yourself for going forward to a start line. It required a major mental adjustment, he wrote, and a complete overhaul of values to feel in any way used to them. I found a similar process of thought necessary later, each time we went into action, one which came no more easily through repetition, perhaps largely because of constant lack of sleep. White also understood clearly how, in the end, despite all the equipment and materiel that might be brought to bear on a battlefield, the farther one got towards the enemy, 
the thinner the evidence of accompaniment might become, until finally, in sight of the enemy, there one was, rifle in hand, the enemy ahead, perhaps ten or less jocks actually in sight at any one time. And almost as often as not, one was the recipient of the artillery fire of both sides. The entire Allied war machine might be behind you, but in the end, in the infantry, it was just you and the men around you, if you could see them. Even when doing nothing more than holding the line, rather than engaging in offensive operations, life was extremely dangerous. Snipers, or at least Germans taking potshots with rifles, were a daily nuisance. There was a steady attrition of men that made, for the individual, the idea of overwhelming Allied might pretty irrelevant. And warfare involves plenty of friction in the day-to-day, beyond encounters with the enemy. The front line carried on chewing men up, almost insatiably. While holding the Tripsrath woods, the battalion suffered a shocking accident. At 10 to 4, on the 7th of January 1945, a gigantic explosion rang out, disturbing everyone on the line. No gun or shell we had yet heard had made a fraction of such an explosion, and we fervently hoped Jerry had not brought up some new weapon. The colossal blast must have shaken him, even as much as it did us, he wrote. 32 sappers were killed, along with 17 KOSBs, of whom only 14 could be identified, when 2,400 anti-tank grenades blew up. The men were carrying a sack of anti-tank mines each, and the man at the front of the line's grenades went up, cause unknown. Sympathetic explosions rippled all the way down the line and back to the dump, which detonated last. Rumour had it that one man in the line had survived. The 4th KOSB's commanding officer, Lieutenant Colonel Chris Melville, escaped unhurt, but five headquarters batmen were killed. The explosion had been only a 100 yards from the battalion HQ. Melville's first thought was to call for stretch-bearers, but there was no one left alive. The only thing to do, he reasoned, was to order up more grenades from the rear and carry on as if it hadn't happened, so some of White's platoon was volunteered for this uneasy task. The day returned to sniping and the occasional mortar landing on the lines, and three days later the battalion held a memorial service for the men killed in the accident. A couple of weeks later, at Klosterhof Farm on the northwest outskirts of Heinsberg during Operation Blackcock, cut off on a hillside in full view of German troops holding a farmhouse, White and his platoon had to make the best use of the exposed ground around them to protect themselves from machine gun fire, always described as Spandau's MG42s. They were ground down by well-organised mortar fire, as well as the occasional stonk from British 25-pounders firing short. White and his men had quickly acquired the ability to distinguish different artillery by its signature sound. Despite the colossal Allied preponderance of ordnance and equipment, German artillery, even at its most threadbare, was entirely deadly, and mortar fire was particularly hard to hide from when the ground was frozen hard and difficult to dig into properly. A call went up for White to go back to the company HQ. As bullets zipped around him from well-concealed German positions, he prepared to leave, exchanging looks with Sergeant Dickinson. They both knew that White might be killed any second, and then, his heavier equipment removed, ran hell for leather. He tumbled to the ground in an icy rut, shots pinging around him, and realised his small pack must be showing above ground level. As White played possum, Dickinson thought he was dead. The whole business had an odd quality of almost farcical unreality, despite its grimness, he noted. Summoning his courage and his strength, and uttering a prayer, White dashed on to Company HQ to find that mortars had been exploding in the trees above the headquarters position with deadly effect. 
White realised that lying in the open hadn't been as short a straw as he had thought it to be. The company commander was badly injured, the company sergeant major and the company HQ signaller too. The second in command, Captain John Elliott, had been killed. The signaller was calling for smoke from the artillery, though it was clear the company knew it had not been prioritised for artillery support. Their precarious position, in the grand scheme of things, was not so important. Major Colin Hogg, the company commander, had been hit in the chest and lungs. Very faintly, Colin croaked with agony. John, dead, poor, but he could not manage any more and choked, coughing weakly as his voice tailed off. Pete, you'll have... take over. Colin managed to gasp and then crumpled up again after the effort. Sorry, leave you. He croaked in a whisper. I would have missed if our heads had not been so close as we lay side by side. The 4th KOSB Battalion War Diary put it like this. Company, west of Orchards, 847751, caught in shallow trenches by observed shell and mortar fire. Enemy located, Klosterhof, 844749. Major Hogg, CF, wounded. Company Sergeant Major wounded and Captain J. Elliott killed. Lance Corporal Leach, Company Signaller, severely wounded in leg and buttocks, remained at Company HQ and directed artillery smoke shoot to cover withdrawal of Company to houses. White was now in command of the company, such as there was one, spread across a hillside, cut off. He took stock as he waited for the artillery to deliver the smoke shells that the signaller Leach had requested. He didn't dare broadcast on the air in the open to battalion how bad things were, nor did he want to send a runner who would surely be killed. Probably the only benefit of fighting in the winter then came into play, the short day. Knowing it wouldn't be long until it got dark again, White was able to regroup the men, evacuate casualties and shore up his positions. Other attacks by the Royal Scots, who were at a different angle to the German lines and by the battalion's carrier platoon, helped relieve the strain on the company position. White felt, as night fell, that he had done everything he could and set about organising his men, checking on the wounded and putting the dead to one side. One of his men, Middleton, had been lying at the bottom of a wet crater for nine hours with a back wound and needed to be rescued. White made sure that he was recovered and sent on to the regimental aid post. It's worth noting here that White only appears once in the battalion diary, in March 1944, when he is posted to the KSOB from the Royal Artillery, despite his daily deadly exertions and tribulations. He doesn't get a look in. By 1945, the British Army, decentralised at best, globally overcommitted at worst, had essentially gone through three iterations – the army it had been at the start of the war, which suffered its calamitous debut as the BEF, the one it raised as soon as the war began in earnest, and then the army that came together in anticipation of its return to France. The last of those armies was recruited and trained during the period when the army as a whole was experiencing its worst reverses, which created challenges for the men being recruited and for the institution into which they were being initiated. As the war progressed, the armies that were raised cross-fertilised, showing techniques, and the men at the top who were no good, were weeded out. Territorial or non-career war-only civilian soldiers were ingested and exploited, though never quite allowed to reach giddy heights. One exemplary exception being Bill Williams, Montgomery's intelligence officer, an Oxford don of brilliant mind yet no experience, whom Monty regarded as an essential sounding board, one that the army simply couldn't provide, and someone in Monty's debt. Though he, too, made his fair share of howlers. But at the other end, the business end, Officer recruitment had to change, to update in much the same way it had been forced to do in the previous war. In a society so bound by class, and in an army strapped for cash, 
Pre-war recruitment had devolved to the officer classes. Plans for Sandhurst to become more university-like in the mould of West Point abandoned. The army had tried to quietly drop some of the radical officer selection methods it had adopted during the Great War, and although it paid lip service to leaving officer recruitment more socially open, it reverted to the norm. Inevitably, public schools dominated officer recruitment. Once the war began, the army faced several problems with recruiting and training officers. In terms of general recruitment, before conscription, the army was at the back of the queue, behind the Royal Navy and the Royal Air Force. The Navy had its reputation as the senior service to coax the ambitious in its direction, while the RAF was the modern, high-tech, cutting-edge branch of the services. The army offered none of this glamour. And the army had fresh public memories of the Great War to contend with, the squalor and slaughter of the trenches. Patterns of volunteering meant the army had to make do with whoever was left. Once the war got going, and panned out unexpectedly, the army had to address a shortage of officer manpower that was pressurised by both huge expansion and the dull, inevitable fact of the rates of attrition for junior officers. Even this pressure didn't stop the army from selecting from the usual suspects for the first few years of the war. If you had been in a public school officer training corps, OTC, and joined up, you would be barracked together and treated with the expectation that you'd serve as an officer. Similarly, university OTC time puts you at the front of the queue for immediate commission. This is perhaps why it is a trope in a great deal of Second World War literature to find the posh chap in the ranks who didn't want to serve as his peers might because it was such a striking decision to make. Class dominated. You had to have gone to the right school, or at least give the appearance of having done so, to get into and then through the Officer Cadet Training Unit, OCTU. For example... As historian Alan Allport relates, the actor, Leslie Phillips, sailed through his pre-OCTU interview, even though he was a Tottenham factory worker's son, because stage school elocution lessons had equipped him with a pitch-perfect simulacrum of a patrician accent. Nobody would have guessed that I had never been at Radley, Harrow, Adjutant General Ronald Adam, who was 100% a product of the public school old guard, made two radical changes that shook up officer recruitment, creating the General Service Corps, GSC, and the War Office Selection Board, the WASB. The shift was dramatic. The GSC's role was to process new soldiers and assess everyone who came into the army, judging which roles they might be best suited to, as well as passing on people it regarded as having leadership potential to the WASB. The WASB then did what it could to weed out the duds with tests and psychological evaluations, and it would pick out those it thought suitable and send them on to the OCTU. And it became clear quickly that plenty of men who had not been to public school were suited to officer roles. This democratised the officer classes, at least where it was most dangerous, broadening the opportunities for people from all classes to be killed leading from the front. By the time Peter White had joined up, Adams' reforms had gone through, and despite some resistance from established officers, Adam understood well that citizen soldiers weren't much interested in the peacetime army activities characterised as bullshit, other external forces were at work that drove the army into more democratised practices. The Beveridge Report, 1942, had defined the country's post-war challenge. The five giants on the road to reconstruction were want, disease, ignorance, squalor and idleness, it said. And it had electrified the debate about what men were fighting for, particularly in Europe. The army that had been saying it was fighting for democracy now had to face the social contract its men thought they were subject to being publicly stated. There was a marked contrast between the Beveridge Report, the way it looked at society and the state's obligations to its citizens, 
and a good portion of the army brass's opinions of its citizen soldiers. There was a widespread belief within the army that the generation of recruits it was having to rely on was soft compared with their father's generation. Some of these fell into the basic broad and oldest time kids-they-don't-know-they're-born genre. They had been spoon-fed entertainment, bailed out by the dull. This is perhaps an unusual conclusion to have drawn given the privations of the Great Depression, but institutionalised officer classes have rarely had the best grip on what is going on in the society they seek to serve. Such reaction reviews had to go, even though they ran to the very top. Grumblings about manliness and pansydom went as high up as the Secretary of State for War, a British echo of Patton's hard-blowing about manhood. Churchill, too, couldn't understand why the modern soldier didn't hang on in the same way he felt they had in the First World War, even as he did what he could to wriggle out of domestic commitments for post-war reconstruction. Beveridge had changed that. What men were fighting for had become clearer, and who would lead the people doing the fighting was refined alongside it. The intimacy of command and White's responsibilities, the agony of making decisions that could get men killed, hung over every moment. Outside Bremen, near Gross Eilstorf, White's platoon was asked to patrol through the woods outside the village and clear them of the enemy. Although the weather was beginning to improve, the nights were bitterly cold and White felt that no fire could warm him. His orders were plain, making it clear that the platoon would have to manage by itself. You take your platoon ahead, Peter. Spread out to provide a screen. Pip, your platoon on the right to the rear. Sant Carey on the left rear. Company HQ Centre. We'll work right through this block of wood first, swinging up to cover the hill on the right before swinging over to this part of the wood on the left. Fix bayonets, check all magazines are loaded, put one up the spout, safety catches off. Keep well spread out and see your chaps keep in line. Any questions? Any supporting arms, sir? No. Tanks would be no use in the wood. Artillery can't be used. We don't know just where the enemy are and there are some of our own chaps to the right. Watch your flanks. The light will not last long. Right? This was an infantry encounter. The enemy were fighting on their own territory near the ground, and seeing clearly through the dense woods and what might be hidden in the trees would strain all of his men's nerves. Since they had entered Germany itself, the 4th KOSB had cleared plenty of woods, but usually with armoured support, the tanks slithering up the causeways through the mud or rolling along the edge of the wood on the flank, ready to deliver supporting fire on any opposition. They were dangerous to any infantry around them, attracting fire and hard to communicate with, but they offered reassurance at least. But tanks weren't on offer. These Germans needed to be winkled out by infantrymen. When would the enemy open fire, and from where? As the men spread out across the woods, White hoped they would hold their fire, and when, not if, some German civilians from their woodland cottages had watched the KOSBs go on into the trees, they were ambushed, things wouldn't descend into complete chaos. As they edged forward, White reminded himself of what a pleasant walk it would have been under any other circumstances. It reminded him of a wood he used to walk through in Surrey. It was dark under the pines, darker than he had thought it would be. The section commander's voices clipped out across the woods, telling their men to keep up and not bunch together. The platoon was below strength. White wondered if his men had realised that they wouldn't know where the Germans were until they were fired on at point-blank range. He found the weight of his rifle in his hand to be a comfort. To be without a weapon would be like walking naked through a blizzard. He also thanked himself for having chosen to carry a rifle and not a sten gun. The ordinary rifleman's weapon made him a less likely target. 
He wished a passing squirrel would tell him where the enemy was. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. The ground rose and fell. And finally, as twilight came, the platoon had to crest a small ridge, something you wouldn't think twice about in peacetime. Cresting meant breaking the skyline, being totally exposed as they moved forward in silhouette. It was the most likely place for them to be ambushed. Terrain he would have used himself to his own advantage. White knew precisely what the danger was. As White and four others crested the ridge, Corporal Parry was shot through the head. Tall, Bespectacled Corporal Parry, nervy, gangly, killed instantly. Time slowed down. Private Biles was shot in the stomach and fell down the crest, towards the invisible enemy. Another volley followed. A third man was hit and fell, writhing in the dirt, his fellows angrily hushing him as he moaned in pain, as astonished as anyone else that he was still alive. White, in the splits of the second that followed, knew he didn't know where the enemy were, but he had enough of an idea where they must be, and he needed them to get their heads down. Quickly, he ordered a couple of mortar bombs to be lobbed into the other side of what appeared to be a quarry, where the enemy must be, only 25 yards away. White thought of Corporal Parry's family in Glasgow. Parry had shown White photos of them, only a child himself. He regretted that the last encounter he had had with Parry was putting him on a charge. Parry, he felt, was reaching the end of his tether with the war. Biles was wounded. That much White knew but he knew he couldn't look over the skyline and check on him without being shot. The Germans knew where they were, and at that range they couldn't miss. Biles' shovel, sticking up, didn't seem to be moving, so White couldn't tell if he was still breathing. The light was failing, and with another mile of woods to go, moving forward was no longer an option. 
White would have to leave Biles. The third man was helped away by a stretcher-bearer, being told to shut up all the way back. And at the same time, White worried that the enemy might have infiltrated around behind his platoon, ready to ambush his men again as they withdrew. And so it was in the gloom of that evening that Peter White wrestled with his appalling responsibility. He knew that Parry was dead. Even so, he didn't want to leave Parry's body where he had fallen. He didn't know if Biles could be saved, whether stretcher-bearers would be able to get him back to the regimental aid post and save home. Biles hadn't been the same since one of his friends, Jones, a larger-than-life figure in the platoon, had been killed. To go back for these men, one alive, one dead, would be certain death. Shot at a range where the bullets crack of being fired and thump of striking their targets was one sound. Having pulled back, he conferred with the other platoon commanders. As our eyes met, there each of us read what was in our hearts, our dilemma which was one of the most awful moments of my life. Consciousness of what might have hung on it still haunts me. Each of us felt impelled to reach the body to be sure, yet we each certainly knew that to attempt it would be fatal. In that moment of silence together, we each must have realised that none of us could muster the madness, or courage, whichever it should be called, to make this fatal gesture in cold blood and from a standing start. Smig's voice in sudden decision cut the awful silence. Pull back. We'll have to put in a proper attack to clean Jerry out when we can see what we are doing in the morning. This was to be, perhaps, White's lowest moment. He had done everything he could to make sure his men weren't exposed to danger, and yet here he was having to abandon his wounded to their fate, to the possibility they would bleed out or freeze to death in the icy night. The next morning, tanks and artillery were available. The wood wasn't worth any more infantrymen. White's platoon was to go first as it knew the ground. The company commander held an orders group. An O group would take on the form available to it. The officers might sit around a map, crouched in a hollow or a slit trench, lying down in the dirt or mud, in a tent or in a house around a candle on a table, and trade map references, taking any intelligence they knew they had or had been granted, and orders would be issued, passed down from the battalion and delivered to the platoons. Often, the presence of a radio aerial, the Type 38 wireless set, was 12 feet in height for its full-range configuration, or 4 feet in its battle mode, could draw the attention of enemy spotters. Sniping or mortar fire would be drawn to the aerial, adding to the probability of officers being killed or injured. Orders could be brief and improvised, as simple as get your men to that ridgeline, or they could be formal and more prescriptive. White's company commander would pool opinions to an extent, but only because he trusted his platoon commander's judgment and expected them to get things right. An O-group could happen at a moment's notice, overrule what had happened at the last O-group, contradict and confuse. But it was the time and place where the business of deciding how to fight took place, the tactical point of the strategic picture. This new sweep through the woods required more coordination. Three Cromwell tanks were to roll along the edge of the wood, blasting anything that looked suspicious, as well as providing a rolling barrage as the infantry moved forward on foot, while an artillery barrage would go in at H-hour, the appointed time, to move on or at least suppress the enemy, if they were still there. There were stretcher-bearers on hand to pick up Biles's and Parry's bodies on the way through. Unlike the previous day, the jocks advanced firing, the tanks, bees and machine guns laying down fire all the way through the wood, plastering where the enemy might be hiding, the racket and ear-shattering contrast to the day before silent and deadly pussyfooting. 
The civilians had seen them set off again, and this time the wood crackled and thudded to machine-gun fire, and the tank's 75mm shells whamming into the sandy soil, trees crashing down, shattering, splinters flying. Grease oozed from White's rifle as it got hot from being fired. As they reached the crest, he saw his men's bodies, mercifully untouched by the artillery barrage that had rained down around them. Ten Germans who had broken cover were lying dead in the sand, near where White had imagined their positions to be. They had fled at the last minute, but were cut down by the onslaught of fire from the British tanks and infantry. One German had survived, and although the jocks had gone into the woods determined to avenge the death of two of their number, he was spared. As he was marched back to the rear, a cigarette someone had given him dangled from his lips, his eyes at once brimful with tears and clearer again as he realised he wouldn't be killed. And Biles? Biles had lived some while after he'd been hit. He had vomited as a result of his stomach wound, but he can't have lived much longer. White reproached himself, and I have done ever since, for not having gone back, but then he too would most likely be dead. He wrote, Yet common sense told me that I would certainly have been killed too, and perhaps have caused a chain of more casualties in attempted rescues, for we knew now that the enemy slit trenches overlooked the bodies from slightly higher ground less than 20 yards away, and the bodies were silhouetted against the light-coloured sand, which would have shown up the least movement, even in the half-light. As Parry and Biles were buried alongside one another in the sandy soil, White thought of other mornings in the woods, the fresh air, the hubbub of chat, music played on a mouth-organ drifting through the trees, and how few of the faces around him now were that familiar. The losses they had sustained had replaced so many of the old hands he had trained and then started with in Walcheren. Since then, he had often mused about what the difference between someone alive and dead was. Simple blind chance. It could be you. It could be him. You had no way of knowing. The future was blank. Uncertain. Word came to prepare to move. On went the war. So what was Peter White fighting for? as the war drew to an end. Survival, chiefly, if anything. After all, life seemed to have so completely departed from familiar values. I found my mind just refused to react more deeply than to try to follow the best human course available from minute to minute. Through his faith, and by what comes across in his memoir as a heavy dose of good sense, Peter White hung on to his familiar values. He notes expressions of dismay and disbelief from his men as they find dead Germans who seem to be school-age, who shouldn't be anywhere near a battlefield. But it doesn't deter them from fighting any further. That life and death were so randomly differentiated. One minute you could be sharing a brew with a pal, and the next day, or you could be dead, blown apart, crushed, sliced, shattered, preoccupied white. Every minute in action could be your last, and sometimes not even when you were in action. White recalls getting out of a lorry in which he'd been riding up front in the passenger seat. Minutes later, a shell struck exactly where he'd been sitting. The driver, nicknamed Walrus Whiskers, was unscathed but never seen again. He'd had his fill. And with the high turnover in men, White's platoon before the battle in Bremen is down to a handful of men. So fighting for each other, or as a band of brothers, won't quite do to explain what kept the 4th KOSB going. New faces came in the entire time. Old faces would suddenly be gone. Some would return having recovered from their wounds. Others, never. If they were fighting for anything, they were fighting to get the thing done. It was from this aspect that Peter White led his men. Every night his men were in the line, having made sure they had eaten, 
he would organise the stag, the watch, for the evening and then spend his night going from position to position to make sure his men were OK and awake. He learned to be lenient, or at least understanding. Living in a state of permanent exhaustion, his men needed encouragement, he knew, rather than bollockings to get them to do what he wanted. The bollockings he gives in the course of the eight months he is leading platoons are few and far between. The one man he had put on a charge was Corporal Parry, shortly before Parry had been killed, something he bitterly regretted. More importantly, he makes sure his men get the rest they need, but also that they take due care in the field. On occasion, they inherit positions from other outfits who have drawn attention to their presence by moving around in their slit trenches or making too much noise, giving rise to bitter and justified resentment, so he makes sure his men don't do the same. Discipline is a means to an end, the end being everyone getting home safely. White also found that when one of his soldiers, the platoon radio operator Private Cutter, became unreliable, windy, however he might express it, it was better to let the man desert temporarily, wander off, make himself absent, than to have him in a role where he was relied on. That way everyone would be in less danger. Cutter would be given roles that removed him from the fighting. That White exercised his own judgment in this matter and didn't resort to putting the man on a charge is indicative of his understanding of the torment he was going through, as well as the nuance required to keep a platoon going. Every moment living in the shadow of death or disfigurement could be agony, and not everyone could bear it. Even so, White believed that to show much sympathy would compound Cutter's misery, and he walked this line the whole time Cutter was in his platoon. I felt a wealth of sympathy for Private Cutter, but dared not show it, for I felt he would just collapse the more. The end finally came after a series of attacks on Bremen. The 4th KOSB had a ringside seat as the city was bombed when the authorities refused to surrender. The last month of the war had been a mixture of swanning, going around looking for encounters with the enemy, and bitter fighting against Germans holding out. Recruits, die-hard Nazis, at one point fighting a training school at Ibbenbüren. Word of the atrocities that had been discovered throughout the Reich had got round to every man in the British army, and White's experience of the chaos of the camp at Fallingbostel, which contained not only British POWs, but men from all over Europe, desperate to get home, or more immediately to get revenge, had hardened him to get the job done. The camp was full of plundered possessions too. Germany was running on stolen goods, enslaved people. But when the end did come, the news trickled through. The BBC reported that the Germans had surrendered to Montgomery on Lüneburg Heath. White's diary on the evening of the 6th of May 1945 simply reads, PM, rumour of peace and, at 1900 hours, the news. The following day, the KOSB held a church service for the fallen. The next day, it was official. The war was over. Muted reactions followed. Danger had been dissipated, but there was no normal to return to. Lives had been permanently changed, friends killed, mutilated. White was in his billet, a farmhouse, like many of the other farmhouses he had stayed in over the last few months, often consigning the farmer and his family to sleep with the livestock while his jocks slept in huge snoring piles on the beds in the house. White had had to deal with families simmering with resentment at the presence of the enemy, dead livestock and destruction, slave farm labourers plotting a reckoning, and again and again Germans who were desperate to make it clear that they had had no time for Hitler and the Nazis. White broke the news. Der Krieg is kaputt, be ended, I said in my pidgin German. For them all, the war was over. 
So, alles kaputt, alles kaputt. Keine Sieg, Hitler, verdammt Schwein, the farmer muttered, or something to that phonetic effect. As he drew a deep breath in between pursed, leathery lips, nodding his head in ponderous, slow weariness. So, England, keine Sieg, Deutschland, keine Sieg, der verdammt Nazis. He turned to put his arms round the shoulders of his wife and of his children, sighing thinly through straggly, decaying teeth. There were tears in the eyes of his wife and then in the eyes of the daughter. The frizzy-haired son, looking puzzled, pulled his shirt on again. Behind him I caught a glimpse of the two smaller children, who, sensing something amiss, looked out from over the coverlet in which they were curled on some straw in a corner of the room. Their eyes shone brightly and wide in query, like a couple of mice in torchlight. The farmer had moved slowly back with his wife to a table in the lamplight. She, bent and sobbing, had picked up something from the chimney-piece which I could not make out as she crouched over it at the table. Her distress was upsetting the others. The husband, himself looking strained and tired, tried to comfort her. I felt very uncomfortable and puzzled that my news should have occasioned such a distressing scene. The tightly clenched bony hands of the woman jerked, trembling in their grasp of whatever it was she held, so that her knuckles showed white. A short strip of what looked like black velvet showed between her fists as she pressed the object in her hands to her breast, then, sobbing anew, dropped the thing onto the table and buried her head in her arms as it clattered. It was a black-banded photograph, in quite a small frame, of a young man in a Luftwaffe uniform. One of the woman's hands still fingered an iron cross which had become detached, and its movements seemed the focus of the tear-staining eyes of the rest of the family, whom I don't think were even aware of my presence any more, as I gently closed the door. Nothing could have so eloquently summed up the utter waste and stupidity of the war, and the futile tragedy it had brought to so many homes right round the world than this family at that moment. There were no real winners. Each country taking part had lost. Perhaps, though, there was a credit side. If matter and material forces had done all the losing, then the unseen credit balance must be on the side of materiality's opposite, again for the things of the spirit. The war might be over, but it would never end. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that. I've got to say that was, um, I, I think that's a, a, a fine chapter and it's a, it's a really good way of ending the book. Yeah. And I know I keep banging on about it and it's almost, you know, my detractors could say, oh, isn't he kind of singing about this, this book a little bit too hard and a bit yeah. too much? It doesn't sound convincing. Well, it is convincing because I tell you what, I'm not very good at faking stuff. No, this is I true. Can't pretend to, I, I can't <laughs> pretend to be passionate and excited no. about something if I'm not. Yeah. And, I, and I can't, I just can't wax lyrical about a book if, if I haven't really, really enjoyed it. And I really, really, really did enjoy this book. Well, thanks. I thought it was really fantastic. So, so this is what I'm saying to you on on the podcast today is from the bottom of my heart, and I really mean it. And huge congratulations, Al. Thanks, Jim. Um, it's fantastic. And I would also like to thank you for all the all the company you've given me over the last 500 plus episodes. And you know, I was sort of. <laughs> bollocksing on about about ag oaks and all the rest of it (laughs) (laughs) before we started but it is really fascinating being back here at casino one of the places i visited very early on in my career as a kind of writer and and historian and coming back knowing what i know now compared to what i did then yeah 
and I would say that the growth of knowledge has been has taken a massive spurt. That you know the spike in the graph has gone up yeah. considerably over the last three years. And I'm looking at this with completely fresh eyes, and that's fantastic. And that's why it's great to be that there are still books to be written, still thoughts to be had, still studies to be made, where you can add to this extraordinary subject that you and I have become so afflicted over. Yeah. And you know how brilliant that 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 you've you've done this book, that it's out today, and. You know, I'm in Italy, but I can show you I will be raising a glass to you this evening. Thank you, Jim. That's very... And I will raise some more next time I see you. <laughs> Brilliant. Excellent. Well, as anyone who listens to this podcast regularly knows, the, the raising good glass is, is something we embrace enthusiastically. Yeah, so, um, th- We absolutely do. Thanks, Jim. Um, uh, no, thank uh, you. Uh, and, um, and well done. And see you all very soon. We'll see you in, yeah. um, well, next week. We'll I guess. see you next week, yeah. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye-bye.